Welcome to the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast, the sports podcast where we delve into the teams that came close to glory but never won the big one. I'm your host, Gen X sports geek, Peter Shaw, and I'm joined once again for this part two of the 1990-1992 Pittsburgh Pirates by AT&T sportscaster Rob King coming all the way remotely from the steel city of Pittsburgh. We left off where the Pirates were about to face off with the upstart worst-to-first Atlanta Braves for the 1991 National League Championship Series. So here we go. Game one was in the Berg, and it went really well for the Buccos. Drabeck pitched a gym, and he beat he outdo Glavin 5-1, to one, and even got an RBI double himself. Van Slyke and Benia both provided the rest of the pop. They combined for three runs and three RBIs, so... Good start for the Buccos. Game two in the Berg was a true duel, a lot tighter than the last one. Steve Avery and the Braves actually got a 1-0 win over Zane Smith and the Pirates. Zane Smith, who also pitched for the Braves during his career, I remember, pitched quite valiantly. I mean, the only and the only run of the game was was in the sixth inning when light-hitting Mark Lemke, he had 234 all year, was the second baseman. He doubled in uh, justice for the only run of the game. So there you have it, 1-1, on to game three in Hotlanta. Just quickly, as a, from a professional perspective, I was working in Utica at the time. Utica, New York was my first on-air job in TV. And Mark Lemke was from Whitesboro. So he was always Whitesboro's Mark Lemke, as if that were part of his name. And <laughs> Eddie Van was from New Hartford, also in our viewing uh, area. So he was always New Hartford's Andy Van like again, as if that was – a part of his appellation. So uh, the two of them, big rooting interest in upstate New York, uh, which is not a not a hotbed for baseball activity. Although Tom Browning is an upstate New Yorker as well, so oh, I didn't know uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people cheering hard for Mark Lemke if they weren't cheering for Andy Vance like in upstate New York. Right. No, I, I see. I I am learning so much during this podcast. I <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I'm impressed, Rob. So not, not that I'm shocked, but I'm impressed. These are real deep cuts, knowing where Mark Lemke's from. Um, most people on earth don't even know who Mark Lemke is. So that's cool. So game three back down in Atlanta, and the Braves just beat up the Pirates game three. Seven different Braves got an RBI. Sid Bream went back to, came back to haunt his old team, hit a three-run home run in the eighth, and the Pirates lost in a 10-3 blowout to the Braves. So here we go. The Braves were up 2-1, to one, and they were in the driver's seat, uh, much like the 1979 hit by Sniff and the Tears. Game four started much like game three, and the Braves went up 2-0 to, after one inning. Randy Tomlin, no relation to Mike Tomlin, was the pitcher for the Pirates. And um, after a shaky start, he really buckled down and didn't let, let up another run until the sixth inning when they pulled him. By that time, the Pirates had clawed back to a 2-2 tie with RBI singles from platoon catcher Don Slott and Jay Bell. Then they brought in starter Bob Walk to help out in relief. He pitched two solid innings, and the game was tied going into the eighth, and then Stan Belinda came in to pitch the ninth. Now, Lemke got to first, and the Braves bunted Lemke, which would have been the winning run over to second with two outs. And then, But, but the Linda retired the next batter, and then it was, so it was tied 2-2 at the end of nine, and then on to the 10. So free baseball for everybody. As George Carlin says, baseball, you never know when it's going to end. It can keep going. So Van Slyke let off the 10th with a walk and stole second with two outs. 
Steve Bouchelle, who would also go on play for the uh, White Sox, if I remember right, walked. And th- then up came light-hitting, left-hitting catcher Spanky Lavalier. So Leland pinch hit him for the righty Don Slot against the righty reliever Kent Merker. So as uh, Mr. Burns said in the Simpsons baseball episode, Homer at the Bat, I'm playing the percentages, Strawberry. This actually worked out really well. Even though Spanky fell behind in the count 0-2, delivered an RBI single scoring Van Slyke. Bouchelle came around to try to score, but he was dead to rights at home. But the Pirates had a 3-2 to two lead going into the bottom of the 10th. Now, now quickly, I just wanted to point this out. So it was uh, Merker was pitching, and uh, Merker was a lefty, and they brought in Mark Wohlers to face uh, Slot. Wohlers was an unbelievably hard thrower, one of the first guys that routinely hit 100 miles an hour. And when it was right on right, that's when they brought in Lavalier. Okay. And, uh, and Spanky just kind of fought one off. Great clutch hit for him. Really entertaining guy, uh, Mark uh, Spanky Lavalier, uh, Mike Lavalier. Uh, great guy and uh, a, a huge, huge clutch hit for the Buckos. Yeah, that was yeah, that was that was monstrous. So there's another layer. It was a little bit of chess putting in the pitchers to counteract the batters. They went to the bottom of the tenth, and Belinda had to retire the top of the Braves' order: Smith, Pendleton, and Gant. Now, Lonnie Smith hit a deep fly to right, and then Pendleton struck out swinging. He got Gant to two and two, and Gant hit a, hit a ball to deep left center, but it landed safely in Barry Bonds' glove. So the Pirates won in 10, three to two, and the series was tied at two apiece. Now, they had one more game in Atlanta before flying back to Pittsburgh. Game five in Atlanta was Zane Smith versus Tom Glavin. And Zane, you know, pitched really well in his first outing in this series, but didn't get a win for it. So he wanted something to show for his efforts. Now, Jose Lynn, the good fielding overall, but light hitting uh, Pirates second baseman, gave the Buccos a 1-0 lead in the fifth and singled in Steve Bouchelle, who finally made it home. But Zane Smith, as I mentioned, he wanted redemption, and he really pitched masterfully. He walked one, struck out five, and scattered seven hits through seven and two-thirds innings. He was pulled after giving up a two-out triple to MVP Pendleton in the eighth. The Pirates then brought in uh, Roger Mason to put out the fire, and he got Gant to pop out. So then they moved on to the bottom of the ninth. Now, Mason built a little bit of suspense. He gave up back-to-back singles with one out, and the winning run was on was on first. But luckily, he was facing the bottom of the order and retired Lemke and Blouser for a 1-0 victory. So I'm sure there are a lot of, a lot of uh, people back in the Still City who had heartburn and were popping Tums that night, but they held on for the 1-0 victory. So, and now, you know, the Pirates were feeling good. They were heading home. And all they had to do was win one of two to get to the Fall Classic. So the next game was Steve Avery against Dougie Drabeck. Another pitcher's duel on paper. And it shaped up into a tight battle. Through eight, the game was scoreless. So the Braves got six hits. The Pirates only got three singles, all from the bottom of their order, but it was still 0-0 through the eight. Top half of the ninth came up. Ron, Ron Gant walked with one out and then stole second with two outs versus Drabeck. Braves catcher came up Greg Olson, who delivered an RBI double to really break the deadlock and add a little suspense to the game, even more suspense. Now, in the bottom of the ninth, up came pinch hitter Gary Varsho, who was a name that even I didn't know when uh, looking into this game. But he got a leadoff single up the middle to give Pittsburgh a little bit of spark, a little bit of hope. Merced bumped, bunted him over to second, and he put the, so the tying run was in scoring position in the bottom of the ninth. Jay Bell hit a hard line out, 
and with two outs up walked Andy Van Slyke. While he was up, there was a wild pitch, and Varsho got to third. So he's 90 feet away from extra innings and a chance to clinch a World Series berth in extra innings. So the count was one and two. And I hate to say it, but Andy was less than dandy. And he took a called third strike, and the game was over. Pirates lost 1-0. And I got to say, as a fan and as a player, when I played Little League, the most deflating thing was was the called third strike. Absolutely. Is that uh, as a player, you, you, you feel bad. Seeing a teammate do it, you feel bad. And watching it on, on uh, TV. Uh, so now on to game seven. So the teams, the teams traded one zero wins and now was on to game seven and three rivers. So the pirates had the home field advantage and it was Smoltz versus smiley. The same matchup that was the game three, 10, three uh, beat down and smiley lost that game pretty badly, but smiley was your 20 game winner. It was an all-star viral. And I'd give him the ball and send him to the mound. And that's what he did. So this game started a lot like game three. The, the Braves scored off a sack fly and the two-run home run from Brian Hunter in the first inning. So Leland pulled Smiley and replaced him with Bob Walk with two outs in the first inning. So Walk came in and retired the next batter. So before, before the guys in the cheap seats even finished their first Iron Cities, the Pirates were down 3-0 going into the bottom of the first. Now Hunter would knock in one more run in the fifth with an RBI double, and the Pirates really had no answer. In the eighth, they, they, they threatened. They had runners at first and third with two outs, and Bonds was at the plate. But Smoltz retired Barry on the first pitch. Barry got a hold of it, sent it deep to left center, but it was caught. Now, you, think, you thought to yourself when you hit that, if only Barry could hit with a little more oomph, if he had a little more muscle mass, <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe he could have put it out. I don't know. The game would have been 4-3 at that point, but sadly, the Pirates – Went into the ninth, and they went down with the whimper. They, they went down 1-2-3, and Smoltz got a 4-0 complete game win, a real gem. He struck out eight and walked one. So the Pirates were done in seven games. Now, these Braves would go on to lose a very exciting World Series to the Minnesota Twins in seven games. But for the Pirates, who's the focus of the story, their season was over and was very you know, disappointing. You know, uh, when talking about these games, you know, I barely mentioned Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonilla's name. Now, Bobby hit 304, but only had one RBI, and Bonds' bat was really quiet. Now, he was the best hitter on the team, so I'm sure he wasn't getting a lot to hit, but his bat was as quiet as Pittsburgh South side bars were probably that night. He only hit 148 with a double and no RBIs and one run scored. Pittsburgh fans could find a little bit of solace in that this huge disappointment was sandwiched between the Penguins winning their first two Stanley Cup titles. So a little bit of solace there. Another team in black and gold. So then some changes were on their way. So moving on to 92, in the offseason, Bobby Bonilla became a free agent. So he signed a five-year, $29 million contract with the New York Mets in December of 91. And that's the equivalent of almost $53 million today. And that made him the highest paid player in the National League. Now, I know you're thinking about Bonilla and his contract, but that's, this is not that contract, but we'll talk about that contract later. So the Pirates filled in his right field slot with a, with a kind of a motley platoon of players. They had Cecil Espy, who's of no relation to the ESPN Awards, 34-year-old former World Series hero Kirk Gibson, and also future Pirates manager Lloyd McClendon, 
Now, I love Lloyd McClendon because he was the first manager to ever steal a base. I'm mm-hmm. sure he remembers this well. In 2001, he literally pulled first base out of the ground and walked off with it after arguing with an umpire and getting ejected. That, that's probably one of the best things an angry manager has ever done. That's better than kicking dirt. Just stealing first base and walking away still makes me laugh. Legendary Lloyd, was a, he was a uh, Little League World Series hero. Hit five oh, home that's runs. right. Yeah, and uh, and then uh, fiery guy, good baseball man. Yeah, uh, fun I like, to talk I liked to him. Manager, really, I mean, really loved the game and really, like I said, a great baseball guy. And he had enough. That was his second argument at first base that day. He was tossed for the argument. You know, this is pre-replay. He said, hey, they're not using it. I'm going to use it. He picked it up and, and walked off. It's still, it's, it's, still it's, it's one of the best things a, a manager has ever done. It's, still, it's classic. Yeah, but no, he, was, he was a good player during his day as well. So, I mean, Kirk Gibson, most people don't know that Kirk Gibson played a little bit for the Pirates, but he only played 16 games and hit under 200. So if you didn't know that, no one's going to blame you. So Bobby Bonilla was gone, but the team still had Bonds, Van Slyke, Bell, King, Merced, and Jose Lynn. So they still had a real good core. Bonds, needless to say, had another superb year, 34 home runs, 103 RBIs. 311 average, 39 solo bases. I mean, just production year after year after year. He was spectacular. I'm inconsistent. So he got all the same accolades he got the two years before. He was again the NL MVP. And as Rob mentioned, he probably should have been the NL MVP three years in a row. He was in the All-Star game. He uh, had a gold glove, silver, silver slugger award. And he also led the league in walks as pitchers were really trying to work around him because he was hands down the best weapon that the Pirates had offensively. Now, the rotation didn't change much. You still had Dre Beck. He led the team with 15 wins. Randy Tomlin became the number two starter and got a career-high 14 wins. And Bob Walk, as he, an aging Bob Walk, as I'd like to say, went 10-8, and eight, which was impressive. Zane Smith pitched well, and they brought in this rookie knuckleballer named Tim Wakefield, who went 8-1 in the first year of his 19-year career. Now, two of his years with the Pirates, and then the rest were with the Red Sox. So... Cool thing about him is he retired from the majors in 2011 at the age of 44. So that's one for the old guys, I'd like to say. So this team won 96 games, won the NL East for the third straight year, nine games ahead of the Expos. Um, And only the Braves had more wins um, in the majors that year with 98. Now, interestingly, every other division champion that year had 96 wins. Just a weird coincidence. So the the Pirates going into that year, you talk about – losing Benia and losing Smiley, who'd won 20 games a year before, they knew this was it. I mean, free agency was really beginning to rip apart teams. The the capability right. of keeping teams together uh, was dwindling. And they knew that the Pirates would never, uh, you know, even then undergoing financial troubles, never be able to afford to keep Doug Drabeck or Barry Bonds. There was even some thoughts about whether they'd be able to keep Van Slyke after that year. So there was a sense of we're still pretty good, even without Smiley and Benia, but this is it for that 1992 team. Right, right. Well, thank you. No, that's right. And it's, it's something that the Pirates deal with the, today, unfortunately, being a small market team. They bring up some, some players, they have real promise, and they can't afford to hold on to them. So this was kind of the start of that era. And as you, I forgot to mention Smiley, so I'm glad you had him. He was consistently a really good starter throughout his career. And the Pirates lost, you know, their best starter and um, their second best hitter. They ended up coming um, in first place, and they were playing the Braves once again. 
this this year the Braves had the home field advantage, and the Braves were going to host games one, two, and six and seven if necessary. Now these Braves were essentially unchanged. They still had Gant and Pendleton as all stars, but their real strength once again was their amazing pitching staff, which got even better than the year before. Glavin went twenty and eight. Smoltz and Lebrand each had fifteen wins, and Steve Avery had eleven. So it sounds like a familiar pattern. As consistently, as consistent. As Bonds was offensively, the, the Braves pitching staff was that consistent in their win totals for years. Now, the first game was in Atlanta and was dominated by the Braves pitching. Smoltz beat Drebeck 5-1, to one, and the only bucko run came from a Jose Lean home run, something he had not done in the regular season. And Pirates fans watching this game were thinking that, man, if they're dependent on Jose for run production, this, this series is going to be over pretty darn quickly if he's going to be their offensive hero. Onward to game two. Now, game two, unfortunately, went worse for the Pirates. Even though they were able to put up four unearned runs against starter Avery and an unearned run later against Mike Stanton, don't call me Giancarlo Stanton, the Braves shelled starter Danny Jackson for the Pirates for four runs, and then they brought in just a truckload of relievers, and they got nine more runs. And it got so bad, Ron Gant threw a little gasoline on the fire and hit a fifth-inning grand slam to make it zero. The Pirates never really recovered. They lost 13-5, and Jose Lynn once again had the most RBIs on the team with two. Maybe it was a uh, contract year for Jose Lynn. All of a sudden, he's getting RBIs. I don't know. Probably not. So they went back to Pittsburgh down in the 2-0 hole. So who do they send to the mound? They send knuckleball rookie Tim Wakefield, and he pitched a 3-2 complete game gem. Now, the, the Pirates got their winning runs from a Don Slot home run a king double, and then Andy Van Slyke hit a sack fly, so they won 3-2. to two. Wakefield put over two bad pitches, both which were converted into home runs, one by Sid Bream and one by Ron Gant. But talk about an essential win. You're down 2-1, you go home, and Tim Wakefield delivered. Game four, back to the top of the rotation in Pittsburgh. You had Smoltz versus Drabeck, and the Pirates really were keeping it tight. They were up 3-2 after four. Now, each of these starters were let up four runs, but the difference was the two additional runs Randy Tomlin from the Pirates let up when he came in to, to relieve Drebeck. Now, Van Slyke actually had a very good productive game. He did his best. He had a double and a triple, but the Braves were a little too much offensively, and they won 6-4. to four. It's 3-1 to one Braves, game five in Pittsburgh, and it was do or die. The Pirates were desperate and really played like it, and they put in Bob Walk uh, uh, on the mound, and they wa- they did not want to go down quietly. So in the bottom of the first, they got a double by Reedus and an RBI single by Jay Bell, and Avery, the starter, retired the next batter, but the home team then hit three straight doubles to go up 4-0 and send that ace to the early showers before he even got three outs in the first. So the Pirates were in command. They scraped up another run a few innings later on a sack fly, and then Reedus hit another double, knocking in Don Slott. So the Pirates wanted to up 6-1 at that point, and to go on to win 7-1. Bob Walk probably pitched one of the best games of his career, I would think. He was superb, a complete game three hitter when Pittsburgh needed it most. So back to yep. game six. And I would say this too about Bob Walk. A little reminiscent of Jim Rooker's start in game five of the 1979 World Series. So Rooker was a veteran guy. And uh, he, Rooker at that point, you know, he'd had some arm problems during the course of the 79 season, wasn't really expected to start. Bob Walk 
the rotation needed to be reset. They were kind of exhausted. So, you know, Chuck Tanner tapped Rooker in 79, and he pitched, you know, four or five really good innings for that team. Then Burt Blylevin came in behind him, and they won that pivotal fifth game, got themselves back in. And, you know, I asked Jim Leland uh, several years after that about pitching Bob Walk in that game, and he said, look, the one thing I knew about Bob Walk, he was always going to give it his best, and he was always – kind of a gutsy performer, mm-hmm. um, wasn't going to be overwhelmed by the big stage, you know, veteran guy, and uh, pitched a great game, obviously a complete game, to get the team back into the series. Yeah, he's, he, yeah, he's, he's just one of those workman-like guys that's, that was never going to be famous, but known by the, by, by the fans of the team and just always putting in good efforts and really contributing. And yeah, you know, when you think about it, when you win 105 big league games, you've done something, you know. Right, exactly. You know, we think about 250 wins, 300 wins, whatever it takes you to get in the Hall of Fame. You win 105 big league games, you've had a pretty nice career. I agree with you. You know, there are a lot of guys. That's why I, I'm not a huge fan of the whole Hall of Fame concept without going off too much because there's so many great players in every sport that aren't, quote, Hall of Fame, you know, material, but, you know, had like five amazing years or three amazing years and gave people a lot of memories and, you know, maybe won, won, won a lot of games for their team. So, um, the whole Hall of Fame versus not Hall of Fame. Some of my, fa- I have some favorite players that are in the Hall of Fame, and some players I love that are never making it into the respective sports Hall of Fame. So, yeah, Bob Walk is kind of the uh, kind of in the Grinder Hall of Fame, I would say. Yeah, that's just, right. For just that that grit and you know getting that. I mean, how many people make it to the majors and get one win, let alone over a hundred? So, Bob, um, Bob Walk's the kind of guy you want on your team. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, yeah, so he he delivered for the Pirates when they needed him most. So now they're down three to two. They put Tim Wainfield back on the mound against Glavin. And unlike game three, when it was tight, this, this game was not tight. The Pirates really just blew the doors off. They were fast out of the box, and they jumped on Glavin in the second. Barry Bonds had a leadoff home run, so kind of uh, reversed some of his playoff short circuits. And the rest of the team joined in. They got eight runs total with the real coup de grace being a Jay Bell three-run home run, and they sent Tom Glavin to the showers. Now, the Pirates didn't even let up. They, they kept up the pressure. They got 13 total hits, and they actually won 13-4. to four. Dave Justice got two late home runs to make the uh, score line a little less laughable. But when the dust settled, the Pirates had won, and Wakefield now had his second complete game victory of the NLCS, which is not bad for a rookie. No, um, he, was a, he was a huge shot in the arm for that team. And again, you know, usually teams have that. Some guy comes up out of nowhere. Somebody has a career year. That's what it takes. You know, there, there, are, there are usually several good teams battling for a pennant. Well, who stays healthy? Who has the, who has the guy that comes up out of nowhere and, and performs, uh, you know, Bo Hart for the Cardinals several years ago. Tim right, Wakefield, right. Bo Hart kind of disappeared, but um, Tim Wakefield went on to have a really, um, you know, long, successful, outstanding career. But a little out of nowhere or who's the guy that, you know, bats 300 when you're expecting to hit 212. It, it takes all those things usually to win a division like the Pirates did in 92. Exactly. Scott Brocious for the Yankees in that world series against the Padres. He just came out of nowhere and was, was unheralded and really just was spectacular. So right. those are the cool stories, the guys that you don't expect to, to shine. So Wakefield, Two wins, two complete wins in the NLCS. Really, really a special rookie season. So now it's all came down to game seven. And only this year it was in Atlanta. 
Pirates decided to go with their regular season ace, Doug Drayback, and the point went Smolt. Now, top of the first, Alex Cole for the Pirates led off of the walk, got the third on a Van Slyke double, and was brought home by a sack fly by Orlando Merced. So they were up one to nothing. In the sixth, now Drayback, and Drayback at this point pitching lights out. In the sixth, Bell led off with a double, and Van Slyke knocked him in with a single. In the bottom, so the Pirates are up 2 0 in the bottom of the sixth. Braves loaded the bases with no outs with three straight singles. And uh, Doug Drabeck came up and got Jeff Bilzer to line into a double play. And then Pendleton came up, you know, the previous NL MVP, and he got him to line out. So all the Pirates fans could rest a little easier. Uh, Jimmy Lee put away his Marlboro Reds still at least after the game. And uh, the Pirates uh, maintained their 2-0 lead. So... It's game seven. The Pirates have a 2-0 lead going into the bottom of the ninth. And Drapek is still on the mound. Now, he was 0-2 as a start of the series, you know, with some bad luck uh, contributing. But was this going to be his redemption, really, was the question. And up came Terry Pendleton. Pendleton hit a double down the right field line to lead off. The thing that really gave the Braves more life was Lynn. It's a ground ball from Justice. Lynn muffed the ground ball and allowed Pendleton to scamper to third. So really, really what happens there is, if people remember, um, a lot of people, Lloyd McClendon was playing right field. And there was a pop-up, and some people feel like McClendon may have misread that. Um, I'm not sure if Lloyd feels that way, but it wasn't a hard-hit ball that doubled a leadoff. And so... You're thinking, ooh, that's a bit of a ba- that's a bit of bad luck. And then Jose Lean, who's a phenomenal defensive yeah. second baseman, routine ground ball makes an error. So really, you know, if you're Doug Drabeck on the mound, you're thinking, man, this should be one out away from going to the World Series. Exactly. Right. Now I find myself in a jam. Exactly. Yeah, I know. And he had pitched so well. So all up came Sid Bream, who keeps coming up in this story as a recurring character, and he walked. So all you got all of a sudden you got bases loaded, no out. So Leland did what I think anybody would do, which was he pulled Drabeck. And then he brought in Stan Belinda to help put out the fire. They're still up 2-0, even if there's bases loaded, no outs. And up comes Ron Gant, you know, their best offensive player, I would say, as far as just sheer power. So uh, Belinda had a pitch to him. There was no room to walk him. And it wasn't like the Bad News Bears where you're going to walk someone with the bases loaded just to get past the best hitter. Gant came up and hit a line drive to left field, which was caught, but it was a, it, it, it served as a sack fly, and Pendleton tagged up and came in. So now it was a one-run game, two to one, bottom of the ninth, two outs, first and second. Now, these names are like deep cuts for Braves fans. Damon Berryhill came up next, and he was walked to load the bases with one out. Now, to jump in again here, uh, John McSherry started that game as the home plate umpire. And he had an extreme case of dizziness and was forced to leave the game. Randy Marsh then moved behind the plate. And there are a lot of Pirates fans, if you can go back and look at that, who really felt like Stan Belinda got squeezed by Randy Marsh, you know, when he was facing Damon Berryhill, that that shouldn't have been a walk at all. Um, Could have been a strikeout or, or, or maybe Berryhill gets in a bad count and is forced to put the ball in play. So again, you're talking about you know, from, from Pirates fans' perspective, a bloop ball to right field, an error, and a walk that shouldn't have been a walk, reloading the bases here and, and setting up some of the drama for the Braves. Yeah, so that's, some, you know, 
I didn't, I, you know, I looked back and I looked at, I watched a lot of these games because of the joys of YouTube. I did not, I did not dissect it that deeply, but that's, see, that's, that's why it's great to have you uh, working with me on this because I had no idea about that, but that adds another layer of, I guess, anger and anxiety for the Pirates fans who were watching sure. what happened. So Brian Hunter came up and he had, had a pretty good offensive series. He was in the hole zero and one, but he popped up the next pitch to Lind at second. So Lind caught that one. Two outs, bottom of the ninth, two to one. They are losing, and the World Series is on the line for both teams. The Pirates need one more out, and they would be the NL champions for the first time in 13 years. So the city was on edge. And up came uh, Jeff Reardon. The Braves reliever was up next. So, of course, Bobby Cox pinch hit for him. And he brought in some guy named Francisco Cabrera, who is a backup catcher and first baseman. Now, Cabrera had 11 plate appearances all year, but Cox had him had him as their pinch hitter and popped him in the game. So it, uh, after three pitches, it was two to one, two and one, I should say. And what followed was really the things of Pirate fan nightmares, much like Bucky effing Dent was for the Red Sox fans in 1978. So Cabrera gets up, he laced a line drive single towards Barry Bonds in short left field to easily score justice from third with a tying run. Now, the third base coach waved around Sid Bream, who was not known for his speed on the base paths to try to score. Barry Bonds comes up throwing, and the throw, which I watched over and over, was wide. And despite Michael Vallier's effort to grab the ball and lunge for the tag, Bream slid in an instant before the tag to end the unlikely rally, and the Braves won 3-2. to two to go on to the World Series. Any memories from that last climactic play? Well, first of all, again, in, you know, having met and talked to players on both teams, I certainly feel sorry for Stan Belinda because oh, I think, yeah. you know, Pirates fans kind of blame him and his teammates do not. His, Stan Belinda's teammates, look, he came in with the bases loaded and nobody out in the ninth inning right. of a 2 nothing game and, you know, got a pop-up, got squeezed, uh, got another out, you know, and look, he didn't allow an earned run in the 91 or 92 playoffs. And he pitched pretty well in the 90, uh, the 1990 playoffs as well. Um, right, he, right. Good point. He's a good postseason pitcher. And the pitch that Cabrera hit really is the kind of pitch that the pitcher wants you to swing at. It's, it's, it's out of way. And if you try to pull it, you almost invariably hit that ball on the ground to the shortstop. Well, Cabrera, you got to give him credit. Um, got to it, hit a line drive uh, over the shortstop's head, and, of course, wound up plating the two runs. Uh, so you feel badly for Belinda to throw a little bit offline by Bonds. I mean, if it's on the plate, uh, Bream is out. Um, it wasn't a horrible throw, but it wasn't quite where it needed to be. I mean, what an ending. What a finish. You know, you think, right. about, you think about how the Pirates ended the 60 World Series. You think about how the Pirates ended that 92 NLCS. I mean, uh, the, the the highest high, the greatest ending ever in in uh, World Series history supplied by Mazeroski. Right. And, you know, maybe the greatest, although certainly not from Pirates fans' perspective, no. most dramatic ending maybe to an NLCS ever with a two-strike, two-out base hit that's, that scores two runs on a, on a close play at the plate. Exactly. Um, dramatic, yeah. but uh, heartbreaking for sure. Yeah, I remember watching that in my roommate's bedroom, and he went to Emory, so he somehow adopted the Atlanta Braves as fans. So even though I didn't know at that time I was going to live in Pittsburgh for 16 years, 
I was cheering for the Pirates that day, mainly just maybe because my roommate was cheering for the Braves so loudly, but it was it was disappointing. That ended the uh, the Pirates' aspirations. Now the the Braves went on after you know winning the NL championship. They went on to the World Series again, where they would lose to the Toronto Blue Jays. Blue Jays would beat their American Invaders in six games. Now the aftermath or the autopsy, if you will. In the offseason, as we alluded to earlier, free agent Doug Drabeck signed with the Astros. Barry Bonds left for the Giants. And in 93, the three-time defending NL East champion fell to fifth place in the division with a 75-87 and 87 record. Now, sadly, this was Leland's best record during his last four years managing the team. In 97, he would leave the Pirates and manage the Florida Marlins to their first World Series win. And then he would later go on to manage the Tigers and take them to two World Series, but unfortunately losing them both before he retired from managing in 2013. Now, 93 would also become the first Pirates losing season of 20 in a row. And they would not have another winning season until 2013 when they returned to the playoffs as a wild card. And that city was rocking when they did that. They beat the Reds in the wild card game in an amazing game before falling to the Cardinals in a very tight series in the next round. Now, they made the wild card the next two years, but weren't fortunate enough to go up against the two, the two most um, on-fire pitchers in the NL uh, for each team, and they ended up losing uh, both of those to the Cubs and then the Giants. I still have my Pirates 200, 2013 playoff t-shirt that says, We Play for October which I don't think has aged that well. Now let's talk about Bobby Bonilla. Now Bobby Bonilla left the year before this most heart-wrenching of defeats and would go on to play for a total of eight different teams. His six-year stint with the Pirates was his longest on any team. Now in an interesting turn of events, he would win the World Series as a member of the Marlins with Leland in 97 in his one year with the Marlins, where they were basically a team of mercenaries before there was a huge fire sale. Now Bobby retired in 2001 after playing his last season with the Cardinals. Now, he won that World Series with the Marlins. He was a six-time All-Star, three-time Silver Slugger winner, had a lifetime 279 average, 287 home runs. And we talked about Hall of Fame credentials. I don't think he's going to get into the Hall of Fame, but those are still really good credentials, I would say. Very good player. Yeah, but not a Hall of Fame. In anybody's book, yeah, he had some amazing years. But he's definitely going to go into the contract Hall of Fame. And uh, this is the one, this is the thing that everyone's obsessed about with Bobby Bonilla. So he bounced from the Mets to the Orioles, to the Marlins, to the Dodgers. And then the Mets got him back in 98, maybe for nostalgic purposes. Now, in 99, he had a real mediocre season and the Mets released him, but they still owed him $5.9 million. You know, like stuff you find in your pocket, back of the couch type stuff. So Benia and his agent offered the Mets a deal to defer the payment for a decade. Maybe the Mets were tight on money. Basically, the Mets agreed to pay him an annual paycheck of $1.19 million starting in 2011, so 12 years later, and ending in 2035, which would add up to a total payout of $29.8 million based on 8% interest. So the Mets accepted this offer, and the rest is history. Every July 1st, if you watch any sports show or read any sports website, they talk about Bobby Bonilla Day because on July 1st, every year he gets a paycheck for $1.19 million. And his last check is coming when he is 72 years old. So that is a legendary contract. Of course, this is the same Mets ownership that let Bernie Madoff invest a big chunk of their money, which would disappear in his Ponzi scheme. So 
not really that wise financially, but Bobby Bonilla, he's got to feel just maybe a tinge of guilt. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't. Now, the other main character in the story, the man I saw in his ninth and 10th games against the Mets and Shea in 86 was Barry Bonds. Now, he had seven superb years in Pittsburgh, two MVPs. He should have had three. He went on to play an astounding 15 more years in San Francisco. And while he was a giant, he was an all-star 11 times, gold glove winner four times, NL MVP in amazing four consecutive years. So if you, if you added the two that should have been three for the Pirates, that would have been seven MVPs. Pretty spectacular. That was 2001 to 2004. But during this time with the Giants, he, quote, discovered the gym, as we will say. And his head got bigger, his muscles got bigger, his feet got bigger. He retired in 2007 after that season as the record holder for most home runs in the season with 73. Career marks for career home runs, 762. Career walks, 2,558. And intentional walks, all time, 688. Now, I'm, really, I'm not going to get too bogged down in the whole Balco thing, the clear uh, that he apparently put on himself, perjury charges. But the only thing that can make your head and feet grow or after puberty is a pituitary tumor or anabolic steroids. I'm just saying. I'm a doctor. Trust me on that one. But he's a cheater, and I don't think he should make it to the Hall of Fame. I think he made a Faustian deal with Balco, but there you have it. I still think Maris and Aaron are the home run champs in my book. So I'll just leave it at that. So in closing, there you have it, well-balanced Pirates team led by a feisty, knowledgeable, really collaborative players manager, a solid pitching staff, an amazing all-around player and future cheater and liar and home run king, as well as the man with the funkiest, most ridiculous contract in recent history. So these Pirates, they made three three straight NLCSs, but sadly for them, they were not clutch enough to get to the World Series. They, They came darn close. And for what it's worth, Sid Bream still lives in Pittsburgh and is apparently a pretty awesome guy and even befriended the kids with cancer I took care of while I was a doctor there. So hopefully the Pirates fans can stay mad at him forever. Rob, any last words as we wind things down? No, it was fun. Uh, I'm always happy to talk Pirates history. And uh, it was fun fun catching up with you, Peter. I, I enjoyed the talk. Yeah, same, same. So Thanks so much, Rob, for your expertise and, and educating me on a lot of fun facts that I don't know. And I, for me, that's like sports porn. I love learning that the Louisville uh, uh, Colonel's stands burned down. I mean, stuff like that is just cool to me. Uh, maybe I'm weird that way. But that is all for this installment of the Close But No Cigar podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Peace out. The Close But No Cigar sports podcast is a Pug and Monkey production. And as always, I would like to thank Lobo and his band, Checky Brown for letting us use their song Hippie Boy as our theme song.